0: And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, My master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required, and from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on the earth? No, I tell you, but rather division, For from now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. He said also to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? Praise Christ for his glorious gospel. Praise be to thee, O Christ. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for this word which you've given to us. We pray that you would press these words into our hearts. Help us to understand them. Help us to be obedient to obey the Scripture, and give us give us wisdom and understanding, and soften our hearts that we might receive them. That we might sh- shape our wills so that we might obey. And Lord, we pray that uh, that in this time before your Word, you would change us and transform us to be more like your Son Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, uh, we're, we're picking up from where we left off last week. And last week we observed that this world is a scary place. Ukrainians live under the constant threat of Russian missiles. Christians in northern Nigeria are being systematically attacked by Muslim extremists. Even we who are not in imminent danger of death have our fears. I'm afraid of heights and of my clarinet lessons. Now, those fears are pretty trivial compared to death by a Russian missile, but they're real to me. Some people are afraid of getting pregnant, some of not getting pregnant. A friend of mine posted that his doctor ordered a brain scan, and he is afraid that they won't find anything. Last week, we heard Jesus assure us that our Heavenly Father knows all about these things. There is no threat or worry that has escaped God's notice. And Jesus assured us that God is caring for us. Think about it. If God takes care of the the plants and the animals around us, surely God is going to take care of us. God is trustworthy and loving. True, we live in a dangerous world, but even in the midst of danger, we can trust God to take care of us. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil thou art with me. Then Jesus said something totally unexpected and amazing. He said that God will give us his kingdom. Now, obviously, that does not mean that each of us, each one of us, will be king. Jesus is the king in God's kingdom, but we are God's children and Jesus' brothers. On the night before he died, Jesus said that he would no longer call us servants, but friends. Christians are not foreigners in God's kingdom, nor are we merely residents. Christians are citizens, we're children of the creator, we're brothers of the high king, and we're invited to participate in the work of this kingdom. This kingdom is ours. We get to enjoy it as co-owners, but we also have the responsibilities of ownership. In the final paragraph of last week's gospel reading, Jesus explained the implications of our kingdom responsibilities. First, note, we said this last week, but note that Jesus never suggests that weak citizens will be kicked out of the kingdom. God is not petty or manipulative. Jesus promised to give his followers the kingdom, and he did, and he will not take it away from us. However, Jesus said that those who are diligent and work hard are blessed. So do you want to experience greater blessings from God? Well then, labor industriously in his kingdom. Now, this does not mean that God is punishing those Christians who are less ambitious. Jesus has already established that God reliably provides for all that we need. God's blessing is so certain, we never even have to think about it. So to to put it crassly, Jesus is saying here that if, if you work hard in his kingdom, you'll enjoy it more. But he says nothing here about exiling the citizens, even the lazy ones. Now, if you're paying attention and thinking clearly, you're thinking, this is too good to be true. Not servants, but friends of God. Not visitors, but citizens in God's kingdom. Not servants, but owners, owners of God's kingdom sounds impossible well if that's what you're thinking you are thinking clearly because that is Jesus message that is the gospel and that's what we mean by good news the gospel is not a self-improvement message because Jesus has no intention of improving yourself the gospel is not a message of improvement for this world because Jesus has no intention of preserving this world Jesus is creating a completely new man in you without obliterating your personality. And Jesus is creating a new heavens and a new earth. God's care for us now is an overflow of his love for his creation, but it's also a sign of the perfection coming in the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth where everyone will be safe and loved and free from all sin and misery. It sounds too good to be true, but that's the gospel, and it's absolutely true. So Peter raises a question, the same question that many of you are asking. Well, who gets all these blessings? Jesus himself will serve at at the feast for the kingdom workers, and who are these wonderful people? The apostles? That's Peter Peter is there with the apostles addressing the question, is it the apostles, or would it be the 70 messengers that Jesus had sent out earlier to preach? Maybe the crowds who were faithfully following and listening to Jesus' teaching. Well, what about the most righteous people in Galilee? Now, it's hard to imagine that these amazing blessings would come to the corrupt, compromised Sadducees, but what about the Pharisees? they perfectly kept the law. But Jesus was always attacking them. No doubt Peter even didn't even consider the despicable Samaritans, and the Gentiles were so debauched that no one would consider that they had any hope of salvation. <clears throat> but we think like Peter, don't we? I don't think we have any doubts about our pastors, elders, and deacons. We expect that those who come to church every week and help with the work of the church will receive God's blessings. But what about the irregular, lazy Christians? Are they citizens in God's kingdom? Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses are clearly not part of God's kingdom because they deny Jesus. They claim to be Christians, but they've created false religions that only approximate Christianity. But what about Roman Catholics? They believe things we don't accept. And the Orthodox— you know, to, to us, Orthodox seem a little bit strange. So what do, we, what do we do about these things? We want to know who's in the kingdom and who's out. We want to label people so that we can treat them the way they deserve. Well, Jesus responds to Peter's question by launching into a series of parables. The first parable is about a manager. This is a servant, but a special servant. He is a chief servant, one who is in charge of other servants. The other servants are out planting and harvesting the crops, buying food and preparing meals, cleaning the house, and so forth. The manager is in charge of all these things and of the other servants. He would assign tasks, evaluate the work, and arrange for the other servants to be fed. The key here is responsibility for the work. He will have to give an account to the owner for the management of a house. If he does well, if he is very responsible, and the household prospers under his leadership, the, the owner will be pleased and will promote him. But if the manager is lazy and self-indulgent, the owner will not be pleased. A very bad manager will lose his patience with the other servants. He will become angry when problems arise. He will blame the problems on someone else. He'll beat that unfortunate servant. A bad manager will neglect his duties and spend his time partying to the point of getting drunk. Well, if you were the owner of the house, what would you do with such a person, with such a manager? Would you go on about your business and let him continue as your manager? Would you excuse his behavior based upon some excuse that he might have his upbringing or past experiences? Would you dismiss him quietly so that he could get a good management job elsewhere? Would you punish him for his mistreatment of the other servants? It's passages like these that show that people who think that Jesus is gentle and mild have never read much of the New Testament. Jesus declares that such a manager will be, quote, cut in pieces and thrown out. If this manager was new on the job and still had a lot to learn, he would receive a light beating. But if he was an experienced person and had had these kind of jobs before and knew how how the job went, then he would receive a severe beating. Now, that makes sense, doesn't it? It sounds like the way a first-century householder would treat a wicked manager. But remember, Jesus didn't tell these parables simply to remind people of what they already knew or to entertain them with a good story. This parable and all the parables point to Jesus' kingdom. It would do violence to the text to deny that Jesus is speaking about his kingdom. Jesus is declaring that he will cut in pieces and beat those who mistreat others in his kingdom. This is the same Jesus who gently welcomed children to sit in his lap. The same Jesus who compassionately comforted distraught, sick, and grieving people. Jesus will not tolerate wicked people in his kingdom. Now, you may think that, or you may be thinking that when Jesus says the master will cut in pieces the wicked manager, he wouldn't literally do that. Okay, that's that's a reasonable point. But it doesn't make any difference, because if the metaphor is to make any sense, if it is a metaphor and if it's to make any sense, then whatever it stands for must be just as violent. And so we ask, what's going on here? Is Jesus out of his mind? Has Jesus lost control of himself? We read this passage, and we get stuck on the outrageous severity of the punishment. And it clashes with our preconceived image of Jesus. Now, if this were a description of Nebuchadnezzar, the violent king of Babylon who destroyed Jerusalem, we might take it in stride. But Jesus? And by the way, If Jesus condones this sort of violence, how can we be expected to trust him? What's to keep Jesus from turning on us and treating us this way? What if we do our best and fail to achieve his standard? Perhaps if we try real hard, maybe we would qualify for the light beating. But who wants that? What kind of a kingdom is this anyway? If this is the way things operate around here, let's get out of here. We read this passage, and we get stuck on the outrageous severity of the punishment, but we fail to notice its cause. The one who received the terrible punishment is not an ordinary servant who failed to perform his task adequately. This parable is about people who share two features. One, they're responsible for other people, and two, they violently mistreat them. The parable says the manager beat the other servants. Beating might represent all sorts of severe mistreatment, physical harm, malicious manipulation, emotional turmoil, of course, sexual abuse. In our our world, this would include such people as human traffickers, pimps, uh, drug dealers. Do you think that such people should be allowed to continue their work? Is the solution to try to convince them to moderate their trade? Shall we gently encourage them to treat their victims better? No, because such people are tormenting other people. We ought to want their victims to be free from abuse. Human traffickers, pimps, drug dealers ought forcibly to be stopped and their victims released. But these are the most egregious and obvious present-day examples of an evil manager. This parable applies to anyone who is responsible for others and seriously, viciously mistreats them. Now, everyone makes mistakes and miscalculations. A manager may assign a task and be unaware of of its dangers. He may provide too little food by miscalculating the need. Uh, These are serious problems... Um, But these are things that a a manager can respond to and fix. Uh, If he miscalculates how much food that he needs one day, he can order more food for the the next day. Um, These are not good things, but these are are not serious, violent uh, mistreatment of people. But the manager who demands sexual favors for his subordinates, the pastor who publicly and viciously attacks his opponents, The parent who sells his daughter to a brothel is an example of someone who is responsible for others and severely mistreats them. I know of a pastor who lost his job because he played too much golf. I know of a father, a good man who lost his temper with his child and got into trouble because of it. And perhaps you've experienced inept managers in your job, the place where you work, Now, with such people, we may try to persuade them to improve their conduct. We may appeal to their better judgment. We may give them time to reform. We hope that that pastor reduced the amount of time he spent golfing in the future. We hope that the the father who became angry with his children will learn to become more patient with them. But no decent person wants to give the human trafficker several more years to improve his treatment of the women and children he's trafficking. And neither does Jesus. Jesus welcomes everyone into his kingdom, and Jesus cares for everyone, and that means that Jesus will not tolerate abusers. There is an inverse relationship between Jesus' love for his people and his opposition to his enemies. Jesus opposes his enemies with the same intensity that he loves his people. So if Jesus were to treat Evil abusers with kindness, he would be treating his people with indifference. You can't have it both ways. Either Jesus passionately loves his people and passionately punishes his enemies, or Jesus mildly appreciates his people and mildly disapproves of his enemies. Standing on a hill, looking out over Sodom and Gomorrah, God and Abraham discussed the fate of those wicked cities. God had heard of their wickedness and had come down to see firsthand what it was like and to destroy them if they were as bad as he had heard. But Abraham was distressed. What about the good people in those cities? Abraham's nephew Lot lived there. Surely he was not the only good man in that valley. So Abraham argued with God. He made the case that it would be wrong to destroy the righteous with the wicked. And God agreed with Abraham. He agreed to spare the city if ten righteous people lived there. Abraham cared about those people in those cities, and his closing argument was, Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Wow. So Abraham had boxed God into his own corner. Of course God had to agree. Yes, the judge of all the earth has to do what's right. It would be wrong to destroy the righteous. No, I won't do that. That's what God says. God's, God agreed with Abraham, and God always does what's right. And in, but in the end, there was only one righteous man in Sodom. But even then, God took special pains to spare him and his family before obliterating the city. The judge of all the earth did what was right. The only right response to a place as evil as Sodom is to burn it to nothing. Anything less would be unjust and wrong. If Jesus really is who he says he is, if Jesus is who we think he is, if Jesus really is who we hope he is, Jesus will cut in pieces anyone who harms his beloved children, beat him severely, and throw him out of the kingdom. Lot was morally weak, disturbingly weak. He was not, he's not an attractive person, not an attractive character, but God protected him because he had trusted God. His faith was weak, very weak, but it was real, and God saved him. Jesus will save everyone who trusts in him, but he will utterly destroy anyone who torments his people. The church is the bride of Christ, and anyone who would harm Jesus' bride will provoke his intense anger. The church is safe because Jesus is the righteous judge of all the earth, the passionate bridegroom, and he will never allow his bride to be tormented by Satan. And that is good news. Now, this passage is distressing to some people because their image of Jesus is placid and mild, and that is the life they want, a life free from conflict and distress The wars of nations are terrible, destructive, and deadly. The wars in families and communities are less destructive of goods and property, but often take a terrible toll on us. We long for peaceful families and neighborhoods, and we want Jesus to provide them for us. Jesus comes as the Prince of Peace, and Jesus will provide peace. But now we're in the midst of a war. There will be no peace as long as Satan is active and as long as man is serving Satan. Someday our mortal enemy and all his allies will be banished forever, and then there will be blessed peace, eternal peace. But that day is not now. Have you noticed that much of what Jesus says is simply bringing to our attention the obvious? Is it really news to anyone that families are divided? Is it a surprise that those who follow Jesus and those who follow Satan will be opposed to each other? In a sense, Jesus did not come to bring division. It was already here. What Jesus did was bring it out into the open. The war between Satan and Jesus has been raging for millennia. We saw it in the conflict between Cain and Abel, Saul and David, Zedekiah and Jeremiah, between Satan and Jesus at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. But even when the war is not openly visible, the conflict never goes away. When Jesus came to earth in human flesh, he instigated a new phase of the war, which culminated in his death on the cross and his resurrection three days later. The war continues with the race of Adam fighting on Satan's side and the race of Jesus fighting on Jesus' side. Jesus won the decisive victory when he rose from the dead, but Satan and his followers will not give up. So until Jesus returns, there will be division and no lasting peace. Do you know how to predict the weather by looking at the sky? Well, if not, no worries. You can check your weather app. Your weather app will surely tell us when it's going to rain, won't it? Well, even if it's not perfect, we do have some ability to predict the weather based upon our past experience. Our past Experience should be sufficient to convince us that there will be no peace until Jesus comes. When a rain comes up, we know what to do. We close the windows, we bring in water-sensitive articles, we stay inside. So why do we not know how to conduct ourselves in this age? Why do we look for peace when we know there won't be any? Why are we distressed when non-Christians mock us, Why do we take church attendance, prayer, and Bible reading so casually? Don't we know that these means of grace are what make us strong for the fight? What are we thinking? Do we think that we will overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil on our own power? The truth is that we're not thinking at all. We allow ourselves to be lulled into complacency in this foolish wish for peace now. Well, now Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. Now did it ever occur to you that the reason Jesus calls us to make peace is because there is none naturally? Man in his native state is like Satan, selfish, sensual, angry and proud. Put a bunch of these creatures in a room, and the natural state is conflict. Only when a peacemaker enters can there be any hope of a reduction in hostilities, but only a reduction, and only temporarily. Jesus is the ultimate peacemaker, and someday he will come, and he will bring full and eternal peace by eliminating all hostility. Until he does that, conflict will be a constant. And Jesus calls us to imitate him in being temporary peacemakers. And sometimes that involves patient persuasion, and sometimes that requires the elimination of violent enemies. So we return to the question. What is the answer? Who is in and who is out of Jesus' kingdom? Okay, we know about Mormons and human traffickers, but we want to know what to think about Catholics and pot users and you know those sorts of people who might might be Christians, but we're not sure they're different from us. Um, They they aren't living the way we are, but they claim to be Christians. What do we do about them? Did you notice that Jesus replied by telling a parable about good and bad managers? Who is in the kingdom is none of your business. As we said, there are some clear cases. Mormons claim to be Christians, but they aren't because the Jesus they follow is not the real Jesus. But of those who claim to follow the real Jesus, the real Jesus, the divine son of God, the second person of the Trinity, fully man and fully God, It is not for us to know their hearts or to know God's eternal plans for them. What is your business is the responsibilities that God has given you. In verses 35 to 40, Jesus says, Your job is to do your work responsibly so that when he comes, you will be found faithful. Jesus says, Blessed are those servants. You also must be ready. But what do we do about those people who claim to be Christians but are poor examples of the faith? What about those who can't keep a job, who are haphazard in church attendance, or who gossip, who have anger issues, or have bad theology? Are these kingdom people in the kingdom or not? Jesus says we're asking the wrong question. These matters are none of our business. Now, when someone comes and applies for membership in a church, the, the elders are responsible to make some questions and to try to determine as best they can whether there's real faith involved, faith at work there. But for the rest of us, it's none of our business. The moral character and the theological precision of professing Christians is not irrelevant, but what really matters is whether those in charge are caring for the flock or abusing it. What should concern us is not primarily whether the young man in the next pew is smoking pot on weekends, but whether the elders are caring for the sheep. Now, this passage is not commonly read. Is this the Jesus you know? Is this the Jesus you love? Or does this Jesus frighten you? Jesus says, fear not. Jesus loves you and welcomes you into his kingdom. Perhaps you do not know the times. Perhaps you do lust for peace. Perhaps you're a bit lazy. Well, you're secure in Jesus' kingdom. Jesus welcomes you. He cares for you. He protects you. He will never punish you. However, if you are a violent abuser, Jesus will cut you in pieces and cast you out. If you devote your life to your own pleasure, You treat other people as your own playthings. If you torment anyone who gets in your way, Jesus will come after you and destroy you. But there is hope even for you. Turn from your evil ways. Give up your old life and embrace Jesus. John Newton was a slave trader, but he repented of his wickedness and gave himself to Jesus. Follow Newton's example and you will live. Continue on your present path and you will die and suffer forever in hell which is what you deserve. But to the rest of us, Jesus says, fear not. Jesus welcomes you, cares for you, protects you. Jesus will never punish you. He absorbed all the punishment there ever was when he hung on the cross. But greater blessing awaits. You may be drifting along in the faith, and Jesus will not convert, coerce you or punish you. But greater blessing awaits. Jesus has a special blessing for those in his kingdom who serve others. Listen again to the voice of Jesus. Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. If you're content with the boring, aimless Christianity, fine. Jesus invites you to share in the excitement and satisfaction of the kingdom. Some of the people Jesus cares the most about are children. You know, if we had our wits about us, there would be a line out the door of people jostling and elbowing to get out of the way so that they could have a chance to teach the Sunday school classes. You want to know where Jesus is? You want to be with Jesus? Go down and teach the children Sunday school. Jesus is with the children. That's just one example of the opportunities to take responsibility in Jesus' kingdom, in your kingdom, to give your time and money and heart to this wonderful life with Jesus. Hear the gospel. The Father knows all your trials and will provide for all your needs. God has given you his kingdom and made you co-rulers with Jesus. You're safe in Jesus' kingdom. God will pursue and destroy wicked men who abuse his children in the midst of division and struggle jesus has already won the decisive victory eternal peace is not here yet but it's guaranteed this is the good news of the kingdom and today as a reminder of these things and as a foretaste of that eternal peace to come we relax around the banquet table of the lord let's pray almighty father we worship you for your care for us Truly, we are better clothed than the flowers and better fed than the birds, and we praise you. Sovereign Lord, you are the judge of all the earth, and we celebrate your righteous decrees. King of kings, you enforce justice in your kingdom without neglecting mercy. We rejoice that we are safe in your care. Enliven us to serve each other with zeal and joy. Grant us the faith to trust you to provide the resources we need to love each other. Set your kingdom buzzing with the happy sounds of glad hearts busy at work. This we ask in the name of him who died for us and rose to love us for all eternity, your Son, our Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen. Please rise. To him who took all our punishments so that we might joyfully enter the heavenly courts, to the divine lover who gave his life for his bride, to the only Lord and Savior of the Church be all glory and praise now and forever. Amen. Praise God from whom all flow.